Wednesdays with Lib. My name is Shree and I'll be the host for this episode. To quickly introduce myself, I'm a senior at the business school majoring in bait and marketing and the president of Women in Business. Post-grad, I will be joining as an analyst at the Blackstone Group. I'm very excited this week to be talking to Cade Everly-Walker, CEO of Presence Learning, about her experience as a leader in the education industry. Whether serving as the CEO of Princeton Review, to writing her own book, The Good Boss, to serving as a board member for Rosetta Stone and TestingMom.com, Kate teaches us the incredible traits of being a leader. Hello, Kate. Thank you so much for coming on to Wednesdays with Lib. I'm so excited to get to know you and highlight your incredible career and story. Hi, thanks for having me. Awesome. So I want to start off the podcast by talking about your career journey and get some career advice. So, you know, Kate, you're currently the CEO of Presence Learning, which is the leading provider of live online special education related services to K-12 schools nationwide. You're not foreign to the holding, you're not foreign to holding a CEO role, and you were also the CEO of Princeton Review. And prior to this role, you held leadership roles at Kaplan and Tutor.com. And even prior to that, you worked at Goldman Investment Banking. We will get into all of that, but what I would love to do is have you take me back to when you were an undergrad student at Georgetown and around that point in time where you were reaching graduation and about to leave college. At this moment, where did you imagine your career would go? Where did you want to go? And what questions were you asking yourself? That is such a good question. So, and I, so in my undergrad education at Georgetown, as you said, I was in the business school like you. So I, I studied finance and accounting. Those were my double majors. And, uh, you know, when you get to senior year and you start trying to figure out what you want to do next and what you're going to like, I mean, it's, it's hard. You don't have, or I didn't have much frame of reference other than a couple of internships here and there. So what I really knew about what I liked and what I enjoyed was from my classes themselves. So I really loved my finance classes, especially some of the more complex ones like derivatives. And based on that, I started applying to all the investment banks. And um, something that I still remember the feeling now is that you you go through a lot of interviews, you're meeting a lot of people and you're still figuring out at that point, you know, what it's even like to work in a company and have a, you know, sort of professional day job day to day. And so you're, you know, you're trying to just get a sense for people at the same time that you're um, trying to figure out what you really want to do. And I think that it's not, it's not that different from what the college admissions, college application process feels like. You don't know exactly what college is going to be like, but um, you know, you know what subjects you like, you know, what things you like to do. And you get, you get a good feeling, you get a better feeling at some places than others, like that feeling of, you know, maybe I belong here. And so that was how I felt about the whole, um, the whole recruiting process in senior year of college. And for me, Goldman Sachs was the place that, you know, when I spent my final day there going around doing interviews with different groups, like that, I just felt like, oh, I could fit in here. And, um, you know, I think I would enjoy this. And so it's a little bit based on intuition, but that, you know, that was how it went for me. And I took that job and I did end up fitting in there and loving it. I ended up staying for five years after college. That's so amazing. And kind of tagging on that question, you know, what advice do you have for young females or even women in senior positions to advocate for themselves or, you know, even have the confidence to speak up for themselves? This is something that I write a lot about this, this topic in my book, The Good Boss. There's actually a whole chapter called Speak Up So That She Doesn't Have To. And, um, 
in it, I think is the core of my advice on this topic, which is that you, you know, the best thing to do, particularly for women is to find people to mentor you, to work for, to, you know, who will advocate for you and who see your potential, see your value, and they give you opportunities without you always having to ask. And, you know, that's not to say that it isn't, you know, absolutely great and encouraged when you know what you want to, to ask for it and, you know, to, to speak up. But what I found throughout my career and what a lot of the research shows as well is that women do get penalized more than men do for asking for things. And so, you know, I think because of that, where I have found my greatest successes throughout, you know, kind of working my way up in my career and where I try to give back now is by recognizing that, um, you know, no matter how confident you are and no matter how talented you are, um, it doesn't always work out as well as it ought to for women to just be kind of left to their own devices to self-advocate and speak up for themselves. So I've really, you know, made my way by, by having really great people that I worked for who saw, you know, saw the potential in me and they gave me those opportunities that, you know, I didn't have to always be the one to ask or push or, uh, aggressively self-advocate. And so, you know, I guess my, my advice is to find, find the right people to do your work for, right? Like you're, you know, you've got your skills, you've got your talent, you're going to do great work for somebody, make it for somebody who, you know, is going to be worth your while by, um, you know, knowing that, that if you do great work for them, they're going to help you move up. That's really helpful. And, you know, going off of that, I think mentorship is also so key in our careers. Is there like a particular person who you're grateful towards who helped you get to where you are today? There's a lot of people who uh, have helped me along the way, and um, probably the biggest, uh, the the biggest kind of most significant relationship for me was with a woman named Mandy Ginsburg, who was my predecessor. She was the CEO at Princeton Review before me, and um, you know I went there to work for her, and she was somebody who you know I think number one I really could relate to her. Um, you know, she was also a working mom with two daughters. She also had an MBA. Um, you know, I could watch her and think like, you know, I could learn to do that too. And so there's, there's value in that, you know, it's not to say that every mentor has to be just like you, but it can be really valuable sometimes to, you know, really connect with somebody and, you know, feel like you can, you know, you could try to do what you see them doing. Um, and so that, that was really important to me with Mandy, but more than anything, she just was the person in my career who, you know, saw, saw in me that I could be a CEO too. And she, you know, she said it before I did. And, um, you know, she said, I think you should be my successor. And she, you know, she helped me, she helped me learn and, and develop. And then, you know, ultimately supported me to take on the role when she moved on to a different organization. So um, that, you know, of everybody, I just, I look back and I think, you know, that's exactly why it's so important to go to work for people who, you know, are going to, are going to see your worth and, you know, and, and help you and invest in you. Cause without her, you know, I don't know that I would have become a CEO and, and I definitely wouldn't, wouldn't have become one in the same way. Wow. And, you know, I want to just kind of end this um, certain topic and, um, you know, by asking you when you're looking at your twenties and, you know, you have so many opportunities in front of you and you're learning to take different paths and areas, looking back, what advice would you give for someone who's right now in this time, you know, leaving college and in that position and ready to start work and they have so many different things in front of them, but what advice would you just give them to get started? 
Definitely to, you know, to, to find your people and to, um, you know, to really, to really dig in and work, you know, work hard for the people that, that are there for you. You know, I think that there can be impatience sometimes in those early years of a career to, you know, want to, you know, want to, you know, be engaging with the senior people, the senior most people at the company and, you know, kind of get right in those conversations. And I think that I recognize more and more how much value there was in, in some of the, um, you know, the unseen work, the grunt work, so to speak, that I did. I mean, I spent, I was investment banking, I spent so many hours working in the office and some of them, you know, were in boardrooms and in um, kind of those big ticket meetings, but there were also just a lot of hours spent, you know, reading and learning and working at my desk. And those had a lot of value too. I mean, you've got to, you know, you've got to learn, you learn, you really know your stuff and it'll, it'll show up and it'll propel you forward. I think as you, as you get more senior in your career. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so right now we're gonna to switch topics and speak more about your transition to the education industry and your leadership experience. So, um, you know, you started investment banking, went on to get your MBA at HBS. What drew you to the education industry and how did you know it was time to explore a new industry after HBS? So it's kind of interesting. I I've often wished that I had a really great, you know, connecting yeah. point to education. Like, oh, I was, you know, so many people that, that I work in the industry with, they, they were classroom teachers themselves, or they had a parent or family member who was. Um, for me, my path to education actually came through my passion for journalism and um, publishing. And so I, during all of the years that, that I worked in investment banking at Goldman, I specialized in the publishing industry. And so a lot of my clients were newspaper publishing companies. I've always really loved, you know, news, newspapers, writing, journalism, all, you know, all of that. And, um, you know, I was really passionate about working with those companies, which back then and still now were really undergoing, you know, a transformation in their business models. And there were, there were so many kind of interesting, complicated things to solve and areas that were consolidating in the industry. So I love the industry, love my clients. Um, and my favorite client was the Washington Post company. Um, so when I left banking to go to business school, I did my, my MBA summer internship at the Washington Post newspaper. Um, and I went to work at the company after I graduated. So um, through that, I connected to Kaplan. So the Washington Post company uh, at the time, their largest subsidiary was Kaplan, which was an education company that was um, already large and growing and you know, really actively expanding in those years after I graduated from business school. So after a, a little while working at the paper, they asked me to move over and um, and work on you know acquisitions and expansion at Kaplan and what um, was you know deemed at the time to be I think I think Kaplan was going to borrow me for a year from the newspaper and that turned into over nine years I mean I I just really uh, loved the work that I was doing at Kaplan I loved the team there and over those years of being really active in exploring, you know, all over the world, different, different education companies and different sectors within education, I just got deeper and deeper and kind of more passionate about uh, building really great, really great businesses um, within education. So it's a little bit of a, you know, an accidental route into education, but I'm so glad. And, you know, and there, there was certainly 
some point, I mean, that was, you know, that was over a decade ago. There was certainly some point in there where I realized like, oh, well, I'll never, I'll never go back. I mean, this, this is, you know, the, this industry is really my calling. That's so amazing to hear. And, you know, another question I have for you is after tutor.com, tell me about your first experience getting CFO, then CEO at Princeton Review. And tell me about that transi transition going from more of a strategy role to leading a major tutoring test prep and college admission services company. Yeah, this is big. I mean, these are really like the pivotal <laughs> years of my career. And I mean, it really started when, so when I left Kaplan uh, to join, I joined IAC, which had recently bought tutor.com. And so when I, when I joined, it was really at that point, I had already recognized that, you know, after, after, you know, a decade of investing in acquiring, um, evaluating education companies for Kaplan, I had just, you know, gotten kind of stronger and stronger in my own opinions and vision for, you know, what it took to, to build and operate a really great education company. So I was, you know, part of me leaving and joining tutor.com was really connecting with the leadership there and, you know, coming in uh, while still in a strategy role, coming into an opportunity where I could really be part of shaping the vision of, you know, what kind of a company we were going to build. And so uh, I came in and one of the first things we did was acquire the Princeton Review. And so I, you know, I led that deal. I worked on that. And once it was done, it was this it was kind of the moment of truth for me where, um, you know, I was given, given the option of, you know, you can keep on, there's going to be more, more deals to do. Um, you know, you're obviously, you know, you've been doing M&A for a long time. You're very skilled in that, that can be your path or this, you know, can be the moment to transition over. We were integrating tutor.com and Princeton review. Um, and there's an opportunity to become the CFO of, of the two companies combined and to really drive the, the integration of the two over that year. And so that was when I made the leap. And so it came, you know, it came out of, it kind of grew out of the strategy work that I'd done. And it was this opportunity to see it through instead of, you know, being the one to kind of conceive of the combination, do the deal and hand it over to the management team to, you know, to, to get to move over with it. And so um, because of that, you know, I, I came into that, that first C-suite role, that CFO role, like really, really understanding, you know, I had just studied the Princeton Review deeply in the due diligence and the acquisition process. I had, you know, I'd really conceived of this whole idea of combining these two companies and why you would do it. So I was able to come in armed with a lot of knowledge, which I think gave me more confidence in, in making that switch. And then, you know, once, once I was in there in that role, I did realize, you know, pretty quickly that, you know, what I really was drawn to was more CEO work. And, um, you know, I, I had the opportunity because of the, the team we had and my relationship with the CEO to get to be a very strategic CFO. Um, but, you know, the reality was over, over that year, more and more of what I was doing was, was really more aligned to, to, you know, CEO style leadership. And so I was, you know, fortunate to be able to, to make the leap over to that role. And once I became a, C, a CEO, I knew I'd never go back, you know, I knew like, okay, this, this is the job. This is the job that I love having. Um, and so, yeah, it's once, once you do it once, then, you know, I think you kind of recognize it's, it's for you or, or maybe not. And so for me, it was that moment where I was like, okay, I've connected to like what, what the right job is for me. Wow. That's, that's like so inspiring to hear. And another kind of side question I have for you is, you know, when you're looking to kind of define your goals at a company, so for example, tutor.com or Princeton Review, 
like, do you express those goals to like senior management, for example, like, oh, like, you know, in three years, I see myself taking on that C-suite position or is like, how do you kind of get, get it known out there that you're interested in something like this? I think it's great to, to say it. I, I think it's important for everyone, no matter what, you know, no matter how many years you are into your career, what level you're at to have in mind for yourself, like what that ultimate job is that you want. And I actually, I, I ask it now when I'm talking to employees at all levels, I say like, what's, what's your, what's your dream job? Like which job in the C-suite, you know, do you want to be a COO, a CFO, a CEO? Um, because I think it, you know, it, it, first of all, is important to have that, that vision for where you want to go. Um, but it also, you know, it, it steers you towards what you, what you should focus on and what skills you should build along the way. So, um, I like to put the burden on the, on the bosses, the managers to ask, um, where do you see yourself and what do you want? But if they don't ask you, you should tell them. I think that, um, you know, it's, it shows your ambition. It shows you're being thoughtful and, you know, to say, you know, what, you know, not to ask for the job today, but to say, you know, th that's the job I want. That's what I want to work towards. I think, I think is really valuable both for, um, helping you make the right decisions for your career and for, you know, kind of placing you in, in the minds of others as, as somebody to, to develop. Amazing. So can you tell me a little bit about your experience as CEO of Presence Learning and how have you, you know, developed your leadership style and what metrics do you want to make, do what metrics do you use to make sure you're the leader you want to be? Yeah, so I've been at Presence Learning for a little over two years now. And uh, when I came in, I had the opportunity to bring in a lot of people who I'd already worked with. So uh, the company was at a kind of pivotal point in their scaling. The company had been founded about 10 years before I joined. It had grown really rapidly and gone from being a startup to being, you know, a more, more scaled, mature company that was kind of ready, ready for leadership that had, you know, more experience in, in running something that had been that had been nationwide like Princeton Review was. So when I joined um, in the very early months, I also hired a lot of people who I'd who I'd worked with and I had you know the value of that trust and those, you know, the connections kind of mutual respect that comes over time. And so um, you know, that's something that I knew was important to me now looking back and thinking about, you know, like how quickly we were able to move what we've accomplished over the past couple of years. I think a lot of it is thanks to, you know, really, really building and connecting with a team that, you know, already had a lot of kind of built up years of trust in the bank. Um, so, so that was key here. And it turned out, I mean, you know, none of us knew coming in that a year after, I joined, COVID would happen. And for our business, it was um, you know, completely transformational. So we do uh, teletherapy. So it's all online therapy for students with special education needs in public schools. So of course, every school in the country closed very unexpectedly um, last March. And these schools needed to figure out really, really quickly, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to deliver this therapy? You know, there's a lot of speech therapy needs, behavioral mental health therapy, occupational therapy. I mean, these were all things that we had been doing with our school partners for 10 years already. So we knew how to do it, but it went from being something that, you know, a relatively small number of schools um, across the country were sort of innovating in and opening up to, to being something that everybody overnight just kind of needed 
and wanted to figure out. And so, uh, you know, to be able to do the right things and create the right products and, you know, be responsive in that kind of a quickly changing market, I think you have to have a team that is, you know, ready for it and really comfortable and, you know, comfortable pushing each other to uh, make quicker decisions and, and to move forward. So, um, so it's been a big year for us at Presence Learning. And when I think about metrics and, you know, how we measure ourselves, I think that when you're in high growth mode, um, in earlier stage mode, you know, you think a lot about the, about the numbers. I mean, the most literal metrics, where's our revenue, where's our EBITDA, um, how many employees do we have? And, um, and so we were definitely in that mode, um, for, for the early part of my time here. And, uh, you know, what happens is you start to recognize like, that's, that's great. It feels really good to be growing your numbers, beating your numbers. Um, but as you, when you grow that fast as a company, you have to come up with other ways to really keep a pulse on all of your people. And, you know, are we, are we building the right kind of company? Are, you know, is everybody connecting to each other? Is everybody feeling supported by their managers? What does, you know, what does that even mean? How do we define good management? So um, this year, you know, starting really a few months ago when, um, you know, we, we kind of took a breath and recognized how much we had grown so quickly, we, we started putting in place more, um, you know, more metrics that were focused on a couple of things. Number one, employee satisfaction and employee development, identifying, you know, training needs, bringing in coaching, um, you know, doing more to really make sure that we were, that we were growing our people along with growing the, the financial metrics. Um, and then the other area for us has been to, really think about um, defining impact metrics, which, which for us means how many students have we served, uh, how many, how many under, underrepresented uh, groups have we hired both for our company and for our clinical staff, um, and you know, really putting measures on that so that we're asking ourselves every day and you know, driving, driving towards those impact metrics you know, as much as to the financial. Wow, that's, that's so cool to hear and so amazing. Um, and, you know, I think the growth, you know, you guys mentioned, especially with things being so online right now, that's, that's really cool. Um, and, you know, I guess one of my last questions for this section is, what are the biggest challenges faced by women executives that aren't typically faced by their male counterparts? Okay, that could be a very long <laughs> list. So <laughs> number one, I here here is where I will plug my book, The Good Boss, which has nine chapters, uh, each one of them telling telling stories from women about, you know, an area where the experiences of women are very different and women are, you know, put at a disadvantage or experience more challenges, more obstacles. So, you know, I do think that it's um, you know, it's everywhere. And yeah, you know, I think that there a lot. I mean, the, the book is called The Good Boss because it's it's really addressing, you know, not not women directly and you know advising them to change, but but addressing managers and leaders and saying, you know, you should you should do more to change the dynamic. Um, you know, I think that there there have been a lot of times in my life where I feel like people don't see me as as a leader as a potential CEO because of, you know, their own biases or their own perceptions of, you know, either how I should be or how a CEO should be. And so, for example, 
once I had kids, um, you know, I, I'd noticed in some interview processes or talking to recruiters that, you know, they'd say things like, well, you, you know, you probably want more time at home now that, now that you have your kids, or you probably don't want a job with a lot of travel, you know, people, people kind of impose, you know, they sort of de-ambition you, um, you know, without, without asking or without, you know, giving you a chance to talk about, you know, like how, what your parameters are, how you balance and, um, you know, what you want to do. And for me, I mean, I think honestly, my daughters would be like shocked and confused if I stopped working. Um, you know, it's part of my identity with them, my relationship with them. And, um, you know, it, it can definitely be frustrating. And, and I have some anecdotes from, other women in the book who talk about, you know, those kinds of experiences where somebody sort of speaks for you and says, oh, you probably want to take a break. You probably uh, want more time with your daughters. You know, when I, when we sold Princeton Review and I finished my CEO role there and was looking for my next, I mean, I was surprised how many people would say, well, what do you think, what do you think you'll do next? And, you know, and I'm like, well, you know, I'll find, I'll find the right company to lead. Oh, so you think that you'll want to be a CEO again? And it just struck me like, just, I've never heard anybody ask a man that or speculate. I mean, if a man, you know, is running a company and successfully sells it, I just don't hear people ask him like, do you think, you think you might want to work again? You know, I mean, they, they assume he does. So I think there's, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. And in the other area, which is more stylistic, um, is, you know, I think that women, it's a bit of a generalization, but I think in general, women tend to be, um, you know, more measured, ask more questions, be kind of more inquiry-based in, in their leadership style, uh, maybe even be more empathetic. And some of those traits, I think people associate with, you know, more of a number two executive than a number one. Um, and, you know, that, that can be really limiting for women as well. And I've experienced that too, where, you know, I've had sort of, you know, what I thought was a really great um, you know, great conversation about leading a company only to have, uh, you know, a male investor or a male board member say, you know, I think, you know, we'd, we'd be so lucky to have you here, but I just, I don't see you as the, as the CEO, would you, you know, would you ever consider a COO kind of role? And, you know, not that that's not a great role too, but, you know, if it's not the role that I was coming for, the role that I was, you know, coming to talk about, it, that can be very jarring. In it. And I think it's another area where women leaders uh, can get put into, sorted into buckets based more on, on the perceptions that other people have of them. Wow, that was very insightful. I um, really appreciate that. And, you know, next I want to talk more about balancing life and career and writing your book. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what inspired you to write your own book? I know you spoke a lot about that, but I'd love to kind of hear, you know, the, the guiding motivation that really um, drew you to writing this book. Yeah. I mean, number one, I love, I love writing, which I think if you're going to, it's a lot of work to write, to write a book. I learned, um, you know, a lot because I do it beyond just the writing, but I did, I, I've always really liked writing. And as I said, you know, I was drawn to journalism um, from early on in my career and even in school. Uh, and so, you know, I, I always had, you know, just a little bit of, of a passion for that and always did writing on the side. For me, it's a way of balancing. I mean, you know, that sort of introspective, independent time that you spend writing is very, very different from um, the, the work that I'm doing, both as a mom and as a CEO. So, you know, it's always been something that I just personally love to do that I found really fulfilling. So I think 
part, you know, part of the drive for me was, um, you know, to get to do something that I loved doing. But um, in terms of this book, why this book, you know, I've, I've really thought a lot after I first became a CEO, um, you know, a lot of women would ask me for, for advice on, you know, on, you know, mentoring questions, really, you know, like what was my career path? What did I think they should do? How could they, you know, how could they chart their path to, to the C-suite for, for people who wanted that? And a lot of women do. Um, and, you know, and a lot of the advice that I'd hear myself giving, it was really about, you know, how to adapt yourself as a woman to, to working dynamics, to the workplace, you know, how to fit, how to kind of maneuver through. And, um, I didn't, I didn't like that. I mean, that was, it wasn't the kind of advice that I wanted to be giving. And once I had become a CEO myself, I realized how much power you really do have when you're in a leadership role, or even just when you're, you know, you don't have to be the CEO, just when, when you manage people, you set the tone for what that work environment is going to be like, what that experience is going to be like. And, you know, I started to just get really, really passionate about this idea of, you know, maybe we need to stop telling women to change themselves and adapt themselves to be successful. And we need to put the burden on the managers to change the dynamic for them and, you know, remove some of these obstacles that have held women back for a really long time. So I decided that was the book that I wanted to write. And I took the approach of, you know, each, each chapter starts with some real stories from women. And the goal there is, you know, let's teach all managers, men included, like, this is what it's like. These are the real experiences that women have. And then I, you know, follow that with some data that shows, you know, and then this is how it plays out. You know, these are the real inequities and differences that, that exist in the workplace today. And then finally, um, you know, moving from that to, so, you know, here's what you can do. Here's how you can change it. And a lot of it is just really there are, there are tactical, often like very small things that managers can change that can just make a world of difference for how how, how a woman experiences that workplace. And so, um, yeah, so I wrote the book and I'm, you know, I was and am still really, really passionate about now that it's out, making sure that it gets into, you know, the right hands in the hands of all managers. You know, I think so far it's it's been really fun. The book is really resonating with women who, you know, kind of recognize themselves in these experiences and the conversation with them has been, you know, kind of, they, they read it and connect with it. And then they give it to their boss and say like, okay, so here, this, this will help you understand. And that's kind of my goal. in all of this is, um, to, you know, give, give women that perspective of, you know, it's not just you. I mean, th these are real, these are real obstacles that are out there, but also like, let's then make sure we teach the right people. Uh, so that hopefully, hopefully it's not like this in, you know, in another decade. That's, that's so amazing. And um, Kate, that's, that's really inspiring. Um, I guess one of my last questions for you is being a CEO, writing your own book, board member, you know, mom, how do you do it all? It seems like you really do it all, but you know, how do you manage and find that balance between family and career? It's always, it, it takes a lot of work and a lot of, you know, kind of discipline, I think, to 
have the kind of balance you want to have. I mean, for one thing, I, I wake up crazy early. So, you know, I think you do have to, you know, if you want to do all of these things, you do have to sacrifice on the sleep a little bit. Um, and so for me, yeah, I, you know, I get up like 5am so that I have time to do my yoga and do my reading and, uh, you know, kind of get a purposeful start to the day. Um, so yeah, I guess, I don't know if that's great advice, but part of it is sleepless. Um, and, uh, you know, beyond that, it's just, I have had to get really disciplined in, um, saying no to things and not doing everything and really choosing what I'm going to spend time doing. And that includes, you know, times of day, you like at, at seven o'clock, I just, you know, shut the laptop no matter where I'm at. And I go and hang out with my daughters and, you know, as they get older and uh, you know, one is nine, one is 12, sometimes that, that means, you know, sitting on the couch with them, watching the TV show that they want to watch. And, um, you know, I had to get over the feeling that, you know, okay, this is not productive time. Um, I should be multitasking. I should be doing emails while, while we watch this show. Um, and, and, you know, instead just kind of be in the moment. So, um, I think that, you know, that that's the key is just be really disciplined, be purposeful. If this hour is for family, that's what it is. And you focus there. If it's for work, you focus there and, um, you know, saying no to things that aren't the, you know, that, that you can't fit. Um, and you know, you just, you, you really can't do everything. And there are times that you've got to either say no, or you've got to get somebody else to cover it for you. Uh, I've also gotten, um, you know, a lot more comfortable assigning things to my husband, um, which, which, you know, was hard when we were, and we've been married a really long time now, but, you know, I used to kind of not want to be the wife to like be bossy or naggy or, you know, give him stuff to do, but I recognized over time, like, no, I mean, there's, you know, there are natural splits that happen in a household that do tend to, uh, you know, put more household work on, on the woman, but we both work and, you know, we both family and work are important to both of us. And so it's okay for me to, you know, give him lists of, of stuff to do sometimes. And, um, you know, we've, we've figured out collectively how to, how to get to the right balance. Wow, that's, that's amazing. And, um, you know, I want to end this off with one fun question, um, just to kind of, you know, learn a little bit more about you. So um, can you share one of your proudest quarantine achievements? I know we've been in quarantine for almost a year now, but mm -hmm. has there been any one thing that's really stood out to you? Um, so I think this is really funny that my mind jumped here, but I'll go with it. So I think my proudest achievement is that I grew, um, I grew butternut squash and got like 11 squashes out of the plant, which, um, is in starting from like, just seeds, like, like my, I should give my daughter Audrey credit. We did this together, but like we scooped seeds out of like a, a squash and, um, you know, seeded them in wet paper towels. And when they sprouted, we, you know, we grew them indoors and then we transplanted them outside and like they, they legitimately grew and we ultimately got 11 squash. <laughs> That's so impressive. Really amazing. <laughs> Hey, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today. And, you know, I love learning about your career journey, you know, your experience as a leader in the education industry and about your book. Um, you know, it was so inspiring hearing from you. And, you know, I'm going to go back and listen to this and take some more notes, you know, just just because I've learned so much. Thank so I really you. appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. It was really fun talking to you. This podcast was made possible thanks to our amazing podcast committee and credits for the music goes to Shruti and Netra.